and everyone. Just making sure my mic was actually turned on. Um, good to see you guys here this morning. Drop an army, guys. Okay. Yeah, I know. We made it. In spite of all the crazy snow, we made it. We're here. We get to rejoice, praise God, listen to his word. It's good. And what a crazy week it has been. Holy cow. Storm on Tuesday, Thanksgiving, storm last night, now we're here. So I'm glad we could all make it this morning, and uh, I'm excited for this message this morning. Um, go ahead and open up to the book of Luke. That's where we're going to be at today. Oh, by the way, if you didn't get sermon notes in your bulletin, um, Suze has them here. Go ahead and raise your hand if you'd like some. Um, she'll go around and pass those out as we're getting started here. <laughs> 25 cents a copy. Um, but yeah, we'll be in the book of Luke today, starting in Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're continuing our series, um, Written So That You May Believe, A Harmony of the Gospels. And so far in our series, we've been laying the groundwork for all the Gospels, uh, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to prepare for the beginning of Christ's life. We've looked at Luke's introduction and all the work he put into getting his gospel together so that it would be this orderly account of all that had happened that he was giving to Theophilus. Um, and then the next week, we looked at the beginning of John's gospel in which he clearly states the divinity and the pre-existence of Christ. And we looked at how Jesus is one of the three persons of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the humanity of Christ to see that not only is Jesus fully God, but he is fully man, the big word for that being hypostatic union, um, and that he was God in the flesh, who came to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins to appease God's wrath and reconcile our relationship with God. And then last week, we looked at the birth announcement of John the Baptist with Zechariah in the temple and how John would be the prophet or the messenger um, to point to Christ. So with all that covered, we come today to the announcement of Jesus Christ. We've established all the background details leading up to the announcement of Christ, and now we get to see how God would take on flesh by coming in the humblest of forms, the baby boy of Mary. We intentionally planned the sermon series to be telling the Christmas story beginning this Sunday through the next few Sundays because it's now that time of year. We've gotten past Thanksgiving, we're into December now, so it's really official. Um, and we love Christmas around here, and Brandon makes it clear almost every Sunday, we love Christmas around here. Um, and we love it not in the way the rest of the U.S. or the world loves it, as a time of receiving tons of gifts and trying to fill these longing desires within our hearts. We love Christmas because this is a time to remember, to reflect, and to rejoice that God had a marvelous plan to redeem his people, a plan that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, but no one really saw coming. A plan that would challenge everyone's notions of who God is. A plan that would bring redemption and forgiveness through sacrifice and death. A plan that all started with a young virgin woman being told by an angel that she would become pregnant by the miraculous power of God and give birth to the Savior of the world. So let's shake off all the baggage and distractions and stress of American Christmas, and let's spend this morning being in awe of the glorious news that Jesus was to be born. So let's pray, and we'll get into the text. 
Father, I thank you for this morning um, that many of us were able to come and join together uh, to worship you, God, to listen to your word, um, to be challenged and convicted, to be encouraged, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for your grace, your mercy. I thank you for this astounding and awe-inspiring plan of redemption that you had, that we get to celebrate and remember this season. Lord, I pray that you can just be opening our hearts and our minds to your word, that you can speak to us as you see fit, transforming us more and more into the image of your son, that we can be bringing glory to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning is going to be fun, at least I think so. We get to look at the announcement of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Mary and then from the perspective of Joseph. Since this series we're doing is a harmony of the Gospels, We'll be trying our best to collect all these same or similar points in the Gospels so we can get this greater picture and understanding of all that happens throughout the four Gospel accounts. So we'll be beginning in Luke 1 this morning to see the announcement of Jesus to Mary, and then we'll transition over to Matthew 1 to see the announcement of Jesus to Joseph. So I know in your notes there's like actually eight points, but I sort of cheated and made it too sections of four points each. So really only four points today. Nothing crazy. Um, But we're going to start off in Luke chapter 1 in verses 26 through 38. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I've not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So six months after the angel Gabriel had spoken to Zechariah in the temple regarding the coming birth of his son John, Gabriel now goes to the small town of Nazareth to speak privately to Mary. And now Nazareth was not a town to be proud of, especially in comparison to Jerusalem. The people of Nazareth and the greater region of Galilee were sort of looked down on by the Jews as like a lesser or inferior people. And not only was it far away from Jerusalem, so they were distant from the spiritual center of Judaism, but it was also seen as a place in which people lived to get rich and to live materialistic lives as the region provided fish and grain for much of the surrounding areas. As Nathaniel said in John's gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yet it is to this small town that Gabriel comes to speak to Mary, which takes us to our first point, a woman favored by God. A woman favored by God. 
Looking back at verses 26 through 30 in Luke 1, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So we are introduced to Mary with two simple descriptions of her. She is a virgin, and she is engaged to Joseph. Mary is thought by many to be a teenager at this point in her life, as this was the typical age to be pledged in marriage to a man, and some say she could be as young as 12. So we know that she has never been with a man, as she confirms her with later on in uh, verse 34, and we know that she is in the process of marrying Joseph. And I'll discuss more of her marital status later when we're looking at the account in Matthew. But we see that Mary is a young woman from a small town with not a whole lot going on for her in life. And the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Unlike Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah at the temple, the announcement to Mary is quite unexpected in regards to both the person and the location or the place. And Mary was picking up on this strangeness of the greeting as well. Verse 29 says, But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And the word used for deeply troubled carries the meaning of being greatly perplexed with this intense curiosity and concern. So Mary is confused and is wondering what is meant by the angel's statement. She had no idea about Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah regarding John. So why is she favored? And why is the Lord with her? What's going on? The angel Gabriel addresses her concerns, telling her to not be afraid, as he did with Zechariah earlier in the chapter with his announcement of John. And then Gabriel adds a point of clarification, saying she has found favor with God. This phrase, found favor, conveys God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. The phrase is used when Noah is spared from the flood, when Gideon is chosen to judge Israel, and when Hannah is given a child in barrenness with Samuel. What it does not mean is that Mary had somehow earned God's favor because of who she was or anything she did. Just like Noah, Gideon, and Hannah, Mary was receiving a gift because of what God had planned, not because she deserved something from God. So we're about to see that young Mary of Nazareth was receiving a special grace from God in which he was going to do something very, very special. Which takes us to the second point. She will give birth to Jesus, the Son of the Most High. I'm going to read verses 31 through 33. And just think of being Mary as I read this. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Imagine being Mary in that moment. I just picture her mouth dropping to the floor in astonishment. So what's this favor from God I'm going to be receiving? A, ch a child? He'll be the son of the Most High? 
He'll take David's throne and rule forever? What is going on? Gabriel just flipped Mary's world upside down in so many ways. But the one that I want to focus on for now is how the angel's announcement declares that Mary is going to be the mother of the Messiah, God's anointed one from the line of David to rule and reign over God's people. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me, and we're going to see where this hope for a descendant of David comes from, why Luke has included this language in verses 31 and 30 through 33. 2 Samuel chapter 7, before Psalms and Chronicles and Kings. Starting in verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. So the Lord is instructing Nathan to speak this to David. He says, Now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Listen here. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Listen to that again. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. This is God's covenant with David, promising his line will continue forever to rule and reign. Now I'm going to read verses 32 and 33 from Luke again, where it says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, or Israel, forever, and his kingdom will have no end forever. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? All the way back in 2 Samuel, we see God promising David that his throne and kingdom will be established forever. And this was the hope that Jews, like Mary, knew of from hearing it in the synagogue, and they had been waiting centuries for this to be fulfilled. The Jews had been under oppression from foreign nations nonstop, so they couldn't wait until David's descendant was born to free Israel and establish his kingdom forever. So for Mary to hear that this son she would have would be given the throne of David and reign forever immediately made her realize this was no ordinary son. He would be a king. And not only was this child to be the Davidic king, Gabriel states he is the son of the Most High. 
which was a way to refer to God's supreme authority, is another name for God, meaning the angel is saying, this child is the son of God. Holy cow. Talk about the biggest news of all time. Hey, Mary, so you're going to have a son. And he's going to be like any other child to ever exist. He's the son of God. And he will rule and reign forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Just think of being Mary in her shoes at that moment. This should not only astound Mary, but us today as well. Regardless of how long you've known the Christmas story, what we are looking at this morning is one of the greatest events in history and should lead us all to be in awe of God's marvelous act of taking on humanity, being made in human likeness, to be fully God and fully man, and to redeem his people and reign forever. Mary does have one question for the angel, though, which takes us to the third point. How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. Flip back to Luke 1, looking at verses 34 through 37. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Typical biological question. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary asks the logical question, how can I have a child if I have not been with a man? And Gabriel responds by stating, the Holy Spirit will be directly involved with the conception. And now to be clear, in no way does this passage allude to the idea of a sexual union with God. The language used for come upon you should not be stretched to infer anything sexual, for there are no overtones there whatsoever. There's no connotations from the words in the original language. It's not there. And God can create life without any previous acts anyway. Just go back to Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve from the dirt. And the word for overshadow it portrays God's nearness in the miracle, as it is also used to describe God's presence in the sanctuary in the Old Testament, and it's used for his overshadowing presence at the transfiguration in Luke 9. So what we see in verse 35 is a statement that it is God's creative power through the Holy Spirit that can create human life in a womb, just as it brought life from nothing and created humans out of the dust in Genesis. Jesus was to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, which meant that he would have no natural father. Why is this important? Because a natural father passes on the nature he has received all the way back from Adam. And no one who receives the nature from Adam could be the redeemer for all of sinful mankind because he would also be sinful as well, having that nature from Adam. So for Christ to be the Savior, he had to be without sin, perfect, unblemished lamb. So he was conceived not by natural means, but by supernatural means by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This leads the angel Gabriel to say at the end of verse 35, 
Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Here we see the hypostatic union described. He will be fully God and fully man, being born of a virgin woman, Mary. And to help Mary swallow this ginormous pill of what was to happen, Gabriel tells Mary of her relative Elizabeth, which is Zechariah's wife, who will be having a son to be named John, and how she who was once barren is now with child in her old age. For as it says in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. As a final encouragement to Mary, Gabriel reminds her that both of these miraculous births are possible because God is powerful enough to make it happen. With God, it is possible for not only Elizabeth and Zechariah to have a son named John, who will make the way for the Messiah, but also for Mary to have a son named Jesus, without ever being with a man intimately, who will be the Son of God. So how does Mary respond to all this? This takes us to the fourth point. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. Luke 1, 38 says, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Mary wasn't ignorant to what would soon be facing her. To be a woman betrothed to a man and pregnant was grounds for serious consequences from the law, not to mention all the ridicule and shame from every person she would see, because that's not something you can really hide in public. Yet we see her response is one of faith and submission. Mary states she is the Lord's servant and desires that all that has been announced is to be done. She is ready and willing to miraculously conceive and carry the Son of the Most High, give birth and raise him as God sees fit. Talk about faith. I have a hard time submitting to God's law of loving others as he loved me and sharing my faith. And here's Mary stating, may it be done according to your word. So in light of Mary's response, how are we responding to God in his word? Are we submitting like Mary does? Are we praying as Jesus instructed that your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven? Your will be done in my own life, Father, above my own will. Where in your life is God asking you to submit to him and to his word? Is it something with your job? Does it involve a friend or a family member? Is it a sin that you can't let go of? We all have rough, sinful areas in our lives that God is working to redeem and use for his glory. So I encourage you to spend some time today or this week in prayer with God, to spend time in his word seeking wisdom and truth, and or to reach out to a brother or a sister in Christ for encouragement or admonishment if you need it. May Mary's faith and submission be a challenge to us all, especially remembering that it comes with the promise of nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. So that is the account of Jesus from Mary's perspective recorded in Luke. Let's now go to Matthew chapter 1 and see what the announcement of Jesus was like for Joseph. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. I thought it would have been cool to try to like connect the points in some way, 
But in reality, everything happens with Mary first, and then everything happens with Joseph. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go through it chronologically. Um, So Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So in Matthew's gospel, we see that Matthew has just finished laying out the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, and is now transitioning to give the details of the birth itself. Mary and Joseph have been engaged or betrothed for some time, and it turns out that Mary's pregnant. Now Matthew records Mary being pregnant from the Holy Spirit, as we talked about in Luke's gospel, but Joseph has no idea of the whole situation that's going on, which leads us to the first point for this section, Joseph's character on display. Joseph's character on display. In verses 18 and 19, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So Mary and Joseph were engaged at this point. They were not fully married. So why does the text mention Joseph as her husband and this idea of divorce? Brandon has mentioned, mentioned some of this previously, but the marriage process in their time was much different than our modern-day traditions for marriage. To be engaged, or better said, to be betrothed or pledged to Joseph, meant that Joseph had fulfilled the obligations of the bride's father according to the marriage contract. Super romantic. And now the bride, Mary, came under the authority of her now husband, Joseph, But it was common for there to be a year or so between the betrothal and the finalizing of the marriage with cohabitation. Once they entered betrothal, it was binding, legally binding. And the only way to end the relationship was by divorce at that point. So although Joseph and Mary are not living together, they are not cohabitating, their relationship is at the point in which the only way to back out of it is via divorce. So, when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, we get to see his character on display. Now, think about how you would react if you were to find out your soon-to-be wife was pregnant with a child that was not your own. There would be some emotions rising, for sure. Yet, look at how Joseph is ultimately described. Matthew says Joseph is a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace Mary publicly. Joseph was wrestling with how to handle this very messy and scandalous-looking situation. And since he was a righteous man, 
He was just and wanted to be obedient to God's law. But at the same time, he obviously loved Mary and was in the process of marrying her. But now she's pregnant, but he also doesn't want to make her look bad. So what does he decide on? He decides to divorce her quietly. Joseph could have made the situation much worse, much more public, and much more embarrassing for Mary. But we see that he chooses to show Mary compassion in spite of her pregnancy with a child that is not his own. Joseph was able to be just in his decision of seeking a divorce quietly while sparing Mary any more humiliation because he truly cared for her. He wanted to marry her. So talk about a test of your character, right? Joseph is stuck in a tough situation and is trying to handle it the best way he can and being both righteous and compassionate. But then, fortunately, we see God stepping in to provide some clarity to the situation. And this takes us to the second point. The son who will save his people. The son who will save his people. But after he, Joseph, had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. As Joseph had considered all that was happening, he has a dream in which an angel appears to him and sheds some light on the whole situation with Mary. Thank goodness. The angel tells Joseph to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife because the child she is carrying is from the miraculous power of God himself through the Holy Spirit. That helps clear up some of the concerns Joseph has, but there's more to it. The angel then tells Joseph that it will be a son and to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the biblical name Joshua, which was understood as God saves. And it was a very common name for the Jewish people, but the angel adds reason to the name. He will save his people from their sins. This son, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. The angel's phrasing of he will save his people from their sins ties to Psalm 130, verse 8. So let's turn there real quick to see this psalm. Psalm 130. It's a short psalm, so I'll read the whole thing. It's a really good psalm. Um, Good, good psalm. And as I read it, pay attention to the last verse in the similar language it shares with Matthew 1, 21. Psalm 130. Starting at verse 1. It says, Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. 
he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities or sins. We see in Psalm 130 that Israel is urged by the psalmist to trust in God's unfailing, faithful, or hesed love, and that he would redeem them from all their sins. And now we see how that is coming to fulfillment in the baby boy, Jesus. The baby in Mary's womb is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. And Joseph carries the responsibility of marrying Mary and raising this son who comes to save the world from sin and death. By naming him Jesus, Joseph is making a declaration about Jesus' mission to redeem humanity. Now Matthew takes a quick pause in the narrative to show how this also fulfills another Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, which takes us to the next point. Emmanuel is coming. Emmanuel is coming. Flip back to Matthew 1. I'll read verses 22 through 23. It says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Matthew wanted to clue his audience into the bigger picture of what was going on here. Not only was the boy to be named Jesus, but he was actually the fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And now something totally different is occurring in Isaiah 7 at the time. So let's turn there and read what's going on so we can see the context of that versus what's happening here in Matthew. So Isaiah chapter 7, first big prophet book. We got to Jeremiah too far, go back. Isaiah chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Isaiah 7, verse 10 says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah at this time. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol, or the grave, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before, before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. So this is what's going on. The kingdom of Judah was under threat from a couple different nearby nations. I think it's Israel and um, Aram. So God sent the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah, to bring him a message of comfort that Judah would survive and all of its enemies would fail in their mission to try to conquer Judah. The message was so important that God offered to confirm the promise to Ahaz. So Isaiah asked Ahaz to seek a sign that God would fulfill his promise. Ahaz refuses to permit God to give him a sign, though, not because he trusted God, but because he refused to permit God to show his authority and power. Ahaz was rebelling against God at this point and did not want to submit to him. 
Nonetheless, Isaiah gives Ahaz a sign, the sign of the virgin birth, which in the context of Isaiah, the use of the word virgin is more of a broad term that refers to a young woman of marriable age. The prophecy for Ahaz was that before a young woman could marry, conceive, and wean a son, Judah would be rid of her enemies. And God would come through and rid Judah of his enemies, and it would remind them that God is with them, hence the naming of the son, Emmanuel, God with us. But the prophecy went far beyond the immediate time of Ahaz, for it was a prophecy that pointed to the virgin birth of Christ. In Matthew's account, he uses the restrictive sense of the word for a virgin in regards to Mary, interpreting Isaiah's prophecy as pointing to the miraculous conception of Christ. For Isaiah's prophecy ends with the naming of the son as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew sees Isaiah's prophecy in the bigger picture of God's story of redemption and says that the child that is born to the virgin woman Mary is Emmanuel, God with us. Not only will this Jesus save the people from their sins, it will be God himself doing so. So Joseph has had quite the dream, and Matthew is all excited about the fulfillment of what was said all the way back in Isaiah. Now let's see how Joseph responds to all this news, which takes us to the last point for today. Joseph's response in faith. Joseph's response in faith. Matthew 1, 24 through 25. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Man, Joseph's response sounds quite familiar to Mary's. No wonder the Lord chose them as the parents for Jesus. Joseph awakens from his dream and does exactly what he is told without any hesitations or doubts or questions. When you take a second and compare this to the struggle he was wrestling with this difficult situation of Mary being pregnant just before the dream, it's quite astounding to see the total change in his actions. He was ready to divorce Mary quietly, and now Joseph receives the message from the angel and in total faith marries Mary, names the boy that is not his own as Jesus, and adopts him as his own and raises him. All the while knowing the plan in store for Jesus that the angel foretold. What an announcement, right? Today we saw how Jesus, the Son of God, was to come into the world as a baby boy. What great news to celebrate and rejoice. That Jesus is the descendant of David to rule and reign forever. That he is the Son of the Most High, the Son of God that he has come to save his people from their sins, that he is God with us. This is the announcement of Jesus, and it is the greatest news we could ever hear. Alongside this great news, I believe it's important to not lose sight of the people carrying the literal weight of this news, to dwell on the faithfulness and submission seen in both Mary and Joseph. Their trust and faith in God to do as he says in the most uncertain of circumstances should show us that God is faithful and one who can be trusted in the most confusing and difficult times. 
So as we close today, I urge us all to reflect on the greatness of God becoming man in Mary's womb to save the world from sin and to wrestle with how we can better trust God with the uncertain and difficult situations in our lives. For remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for this morning that we are able to come together and look at the announcement of your son to be born. I thank you for this season, Lord. I pray that um, you can help us to not be distracted by all of the things this world throws in our face. But may this season be a time to remember and rejoice in the coming of your son, to give us life and freedom, to change history forever. Father, I pray that this Christmas season we can be dwelling on your grace that you gave in giving your own son on our behalf to free us from the wages of sin, that we could have new life in him. Father, I pray that we can be looking at the character of Mary and Joseph and seeing their, their faith in you, knowing that there is nothing impossible with you. I pray that you can be showing us areas in our lives where we need to let go of things to trust you. We need to talk to someone about things that we're struggling with. We need to be memorizing your word to hide it in our heart for difficult times, that we can be praying to you when temptations are rising, God. Lord, I just thank you so much that you sent your son in the humblest of forms to make us even more humble of our situation. May this just be a time to rejoice and celebrate your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take time to respond and worship. If you want to pray, I'd love to pray with you. After.